Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey witches, we're dropping in before the start of this episode to tell you about our holiday Patreon drive. As we head into this festive season, we want to get closer to our goal of earning 6,000 US dollars a month, which is what it would take to pay ourselves and our producer the actual market rate for our work. But here's where things get fun. If we reach $5,000 a month by January 1st, All Patreon supporters will be invited to attend a live Zoom event where you can ask which please tell me questions in real time. We expect it to be the very embodiment of chaotic good. But this perk is only unlocked if we hit that $5,000 a month goal by January 1st. The good news is this is totally doable. We have a 2, 5, 10, 13, and now a new $30 tier for you to choose from. And no matter what tier you choose, you'll gain access to benefits that have been accumulating for a year. So there is so much bonus content for you to enjoy. And for those of you who are already a patron, may we suggest you make the leap to the next tier or even gift a subscription to a friend for the holidays. Who knows? Could be cute. Of course, if none of those options are in the financial cards this holiday season, we get it. You can support our work by continuing to share the show with your fun friends, hot crushes, and rich cousins. By far the best part of making Witch Please is engaging with the listeners from all over the world who come to the show for all different reasons. And by you spreading the word, you help create that material reality. You can learn more and join in on the fun at patreon.com slash please. Every single dollar and listen helps us sustain the show, and we so appreciate your continued support of Witch Please. 
We love being in community with you, and we are so grateful for your listenership this holiday season. Now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman, joined with uh, baby blast-ended Scroot over here. Pardon the sounds. And you know what? Here is my segue into today's sorting chat. Weather has been pretty wild all over the place. It is officially winter in Edmonton. We've had a massive snow dump and it's not going anywhere. So, um... I propose that we discuss our favorite ways to get through the long, dark, cold months of winter. And uh, I will go first. I love decorations. I just go bananas for decorations. And like, as a Jew in an interfaith relationship with somebody who is a Gentile, I love Christmas. But also my mom and grandma also love Christmas. So like, I just, you know, I love Christmas and I love Christmas decorations. And uh, I just purchased but have not yet picked up some Jelly Cat uh, Christmas like stuffed plant things. (laughs) I'm sorry, Jelly Cat? I don't know what Jelly Cat means to start, let alone what a stuffed plant is. I'm really sorry. So like... (laughs) Jelly Cat, Jelly Cat is like a is like a big stuffed animal brand. I don't know where it came from, but they're very soft and they're very cute. The avocado that Cohen cuddles with is a Jelly Cat, and so like in the last couple of years, they came out with this whole like line of instead of stuffed animals, stuffed food, <laughs> and so they have a, a stuffed poinsettia or poinsettia. I never know how to pronounce it. I say poinsettia. A stuffed pine cone and a stuffed holly leaf that I'm going to pick up tomorrow. Wow, I want those very badly. That's incredible. I've told myself that I can decorate as soon as I get back from my visit to Edmonton, which I'm very excited about and which I am doing over the American Thanksgiving weekend. And so that is also like, that's, you know, the universally agreed upon acceptable timeline for putting up holiday decorations. You have to wait until American Thanksgiving (laughs) is over. And then, you know what? Fucking tree's coming out. I don't care. I don't care. I'm just doing it. It's too grim. The world is too hard. I want a Christmas tree. Let this be the year that we all unapologetically just like shroud ourselves in pretty colored paper and lights and things that glitter. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Whatever your festive energy is, whether you are slipping a little Baileys in your pre-work coffee or or just making sure that you're wearing like, like reindeer pajama sets the second you get home, whatever it is, I just, I just want everybody to just like, just leech every piece of possible joy out of out of a festive season. Let's do it. Let's do that. Okay, Marcel, mine is really different from that, but is also really helping me out, which is that this year I have made a personal commitment to bike through the winter. Whoa. It has always been something that I have wanted to do. I tried to be a winter cyclist in Edmonton because some of our friends were winter cyclists and it was too hardcore for me. I was too scared. 
And then I moved here and I did bike first, like some of the first winter that I was here. But like it was just I was like such easy walking distance from the office that I was like, eh, why bother? But I really got out of the habit of getting on public buses during the pandemic and I don't want to get back on them. And so I'm like, okay, I am going to be a winter cyclist, which means I'm going to be somebody who wears a poncho. I'm going to be somebody who, you know, dresses in waterproof clothing and then gets dressed when I get to work. Like, I am adapting my lifestyle to it. I've got a not insignificant quantity of Eddie Bauer outerwear on its way to me in the mail. Like, I am just, I am just doing it. Like, there are mornings when I wake up and it's like, oh, look at this record-breaking level of rain with gusts of wind up to 90 kilometers an hour. Here we go. (laughs) Onto our bikes. (laughs) But it is one of those things where I'm like, you know, literally everybody's like, regular physical activity and spending time outside really helps your mental health. And it's like, but like, it really does. Yes. That's that's what makes it so annoying. (laughs) I know. It's very annoying when these things are true. Well, Hannah, that's incredibly badass. And I'm I'm in awe, like actual, actual awe. I also think we should start contacting the companies that we talk about during sorting chat ahead of time and be like, listen, we're going (laughs) to we're going to name drop your expensive products just casually. Can we have some money? (laughs) And they'll say no. I need. I need some free Eddie Bauer shit. Come on. I would like some free stuffed <laughs> stuffed food, please. <laughs> all right. Great. Great. Can't wait for all of our new product placements. It's another guest episode, which means we've got some preparing to do. And just like we prepare for the challenges of winter, we're going to prepare ourselves for new knowledge in revision. Now, normally we spend the segment summarizing key ideas that will like tie into the episode and then looking at some points in the text that our new theoretical framing might help us to understand better. But... We are going to approach things a little bit differently today because we are talking about fan studies and fan fiction, which is a totally different approach than anything we've done so far. I kind of looked through the old episodes and was like, yeah, so we'll draw on nothing. Okay. All right. That's great. I love starting from scratch. I love learning new things. So what I would like to do instead, Marcel, is ask you what your relationship is to fan fiction. I am not entirely sure that I have a relationship to fan fiction. I have a relationship to fandoms. And I know that fan fiction exists, but I'm not a big reader. <laughs> I also famously <laughs> hate to read, so... My PhD really knocked the joy and the pleasures of sitting down with a book out of me. So I've been like consuming a lot of audiobooks. You'll get it back, but it usually takes a few years before you like reading again. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) But I am really into adaptations. And I am definitely a believer that fan fiction is like a, a very real and legit kind of adaptation. And so I can imagine 
that similar to how I love the Fifty Shades of Grey movie trilogy and I absolutely hate the Twilight movie saga. (laughs) What a good comparison. In theory, I think I I enjoy fan fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Based on the comparison between these things, I'm pretty sure I like fan fiction more than originals. That seems to be the conclusion. (laughs) How about you, Hannah? My relationship to fan, like, created works, so fan art, fan fiction, fan comics, that kind of stuff, really transformed when I got deep in the paint with live play Dungeons & Dragons series. Mm. Okay, tell me about that. Yeah, so I consume an enormous quantity of this kind of media, like probably more than any other single thing. There's at least three, four. (laughs) Listen, there's a lot. There's a lot that I that I like listen to or watch weekly. Um, And because of the nature of the medium, which is to say the characters are not visually realized And they are played by actors, but those actors are, like, sort of doing their voices, like, playing as those characters. Um, There is an enormous world of fan art that surrounds all of these properties. And that fan art often extends into, like, comics or short animations or, like, animatics or, like, lots of ways in which people are visually imagining scenes that canonically happened in the series, right, which is sort of fan creation, But then I started to sort of, like, once this, particularly once the series are done, people will then start, like, writing further adventures of these characters. very sweet. And I become very emotionally attached to the characters. And so then I'll be like, well, I would just, I would just like to know what they're up to. (laughs) I guess I'll, I guess maybe I'll just check in and just see real quick what they're up to. Um, And I really am starting to understand the appeal of just having the opportunity to spend more time with characters you have become really emotionally attached to. Anyway, the best part of this is that a lot of this fan art is made by (laughs) 18-year-olds. And I'm like, cool, I'm an adult. (laughs) Wow. Okay, that's awesome. (laughs) I have a lot of questions and a lot of uh, curiosities and things that I want to say tentatively and then have an expert like nod at me um, and say that I'm and say that yes that is correct Marcel and then give me an A so (laughs) um, is it okay if I say the last the last chunk and then we and then we transition is that do you want to talk more Hannah no no okay okay so Fan fiction, being a departure from the text itself, is kind of tricky for us to discuss when, like, the whole structure of our podcast involves working with textual evidence. (laughs) But our illustrious guest proposed this book as a great entry point into the conversation. So let's introduce our guest and start learning. Like the sun transforming frozen water into a glittering vista, 
it's time to magically transform our ignorance into knowledge in Transfiguration class. We are very excited to welcome our guest expert, Amanda Allen. And Hannah, you know Amanda from way back, so why don't you introduce her to us? Oh, I am excited. So Amanda K. Allen, pronouns she, her, is professor of children's literature at Eastern Michigan University. She researches mid-20th century adolescent girl romance novels and the all-women network of editors, critics, and librarians who produced and distributed them. But she also loves reading and writing about fan and fandom studies. Her own fan fiction has garnered a surprising number of followers and has been translated into two additional languages. Amanda is a proud Slytherin with extremely Hufflepuff tendencies. (laughs) Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Amanda, can I just start off by asking what makes you a Slytherin? Oh, I mean, in truly Slytherin style, I just, I can't tell you, Hannah. I mean... Whoa. Honestly, I have no idea. I just keep taking, you know, those tests online and they're like Slytherin every time. And I'm like, what is this really telling me about myself? You know, (laughs) that is so funny to hear because I feel like so many of those online quizzes are like, you know, you run into a conflict. What do you do? Give the person a hug, fight them with a sword, (laughs) read a book about it, murder their whole family. (laughs) Like, it's just, I just keep reading these quizzes and being like, who? Ends up being a Slytherin, according to these quizzes. (laughs) Amanda, this is very exciting. Thank you so much for joining us because this is a brand new conversation, a whole new topic for us. I'm super excited. It might um, frighten you. I mean, fan fiction to people outside of fan fiction writers or readers sometimes is a little overwhelming. And people who are super into it will know everything under the sun. So that's a whole other side of things. So hopefully we hit, you know, we hit that nice little middle ground. Yeah, absolutely. We can uh, we can sort of explain things to the noobs like us while also not alienating the deep fan fiction experts. Hannah and I will act as surrogates for the audience of noobs. And you, Amanda, can act as the surrogate for the pros. Oh, that's that's terrifying, but I, I will do my best. <laughs> All right. So, Amanda, could you maybe start us off by just, like, telling us a little bit about, I mean, we know what fan fiction is, but, like, maybe how we can think about fan fiction's relationship to, like, the actual books that we have been reading and talking about. I'd like to start us off by thinking about fan fiction not as something separate from traditionally published print texts such as Order of the Phoenix, but as something that functions in a symbiotic relationship with those texts. The background of this idea comes from the first wave of fan studies scholarship back in the 90s. This early scholarship emerged from the distinction that Michel de Certeau makes between the strategies of the powerful and the tactics of the disempowered. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an idea that I come back to a lot. That's in, um, oh, The Practice of Everyday Life? Is that the de Certeau book? I don't know if he's the one who uses this metaphor, but he talks about, like, tactics versus strategies as, like, the mental image I always have is, like, a strategy as, like, the path that's been built around a park and tactics as the path that has been worn across the park by the fact that people just take that route. I love this. 
So it's like, here's the official route and it has been built and it is official and it is what, you know, it is how you are supposed to navigate the space. And then here's that, you know, you always see those like little worn paths that are like, People just figured out there was a better way to do this. And we're like, fuck it, I'm cutting across the field. (laughs) Even not on a field, but like even when you're walking in a neighborhood of a city and there's the sidewalk that turns at a 90 degree angle and there's always inevitably like trodden footpaths that just cut diagonally and it saves you absolutely zero time. But people do it. (laughs) Yeah. So I like that. It's like, okay, so the official texts are like the built path. The fan fiction's like the weird 90-degree <laughs> path that we have cut across the field. 45-degree. Mm, 45 degrees. Listen. Listen. <laughs> I don't have a PhD in math. I love this. But exactly, right? It's it's a tactic, right? For the people who don't hold the same power. Yeah, I love that. In, in this case of the fan study scholarship, the disempowerment or the disempowered were usually positioned as the fans. Um, and scholar John Fisk, he was an early fan study scholar, suggested uh, that these fans were associated with the cultural tastes of subordinated formations of people. And this is a quote, particularly those disempowered by any combination of gender, age, class, and race, unquote. Okay, yeah, this reminds me of, there's, I think, a Constance Grady piece that I used to cite all the time that is like, why are we afraid of fandoms? And one of the arguments was like, well, in part, it's because it's a lot of teenage girls. And culturally, we just <laughs> hate everything teenage girls do. Oh, so true. This is hitting home. And it's it's interesting, too, because this is a side note, but media fandom, we still always associate with teenage girls, right? But we don't recognize that there's all these other fandoms like sports fandom, which is associated very male and older and is somehow given more prestige, right? So there's there's so much gendering at work in, you know, these various types of fandoms. We, at some point, and I can't remember if this was in the old iteration of the podcast, or if it was in the reboot, or if it was when we were doing bonus content for Patreon. But we sort of posited that perhaps one might even think of Christianity as like a Jesus fandom. Oh, totally. All of these things that are not considered fandoms because they are legitimate, even though they have the same sort of like structure and function as teenage girl fandoms. Exactly. So fandom in this early fan studies moment was thus perceived to be a collective strategy or a political intervention that highlighted fans' attempts to evade and later even change the dominant ideologies presented within mass media, but also to defend themselves and their fan communities against ridicule from both mass media and from non-fans. Yeah, that is like the two-sided sword, right? Two-sided sword? Double-edged sword? Nope, two-sided sword. It's a two-dimensional sword. But it is that thing of like fandom seems to have to take like a similar amount of energy on the one hand being like, we are critiquing the text and pointing out its gaps and finding ways through and doing other things. And then also the other hand, we are fighting against people who are constantly disparaging the very process of creative reimagination we're engaged in. That's exactly it. 
I could not have put that better, Hannah. That is just like, <laughs> bing. Yeah, it's a real two-sided sword, as the saying goes, that we all know and have used. I know you're going to give us more information. We're going to talk more in detail about Order of the Phoenix. But Amanda, could you give us an example of maybe a fandom that does this two-sided sword thing? I think pretty much every fandom. I mean, earlier on, you were talking about Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight, right? So Twilight, of course, is both a beloved and hugely hated fandom, right? And and particularly when you had the, the Twihards versus the Potterheads, that was like extreme fandom hatred, right? But at the exact same time, the Twilight fandom was also you know, doing really fascinating work in terms of how it was operating in and of itself, right? So from the outside, it was having to always sort of assert its its sort of rights to be, quite frankly, against a whole lot of forces, including other fandoms, that were basically like, this is bad. Like the text is bad? The text, but also if you identify as a Twilight fan, right? There was, people would take a lot of flack for that. And there was a... Twilight fans were in particular divided into two groups, right? There were the teen readers, but there were the the group who were known sort of as the Twilight Moms. They had a specific name that I can't remember anymore, but both groups were attacked, both like the teenagers because, you know, as we stated earlier, we tend to attack things loved by younger women, um, but also the moms because, of course, it was this idea that they are adults. They should not be participating in something that is considered to be sort of for younger people. And and in that attack, there's the questioning of their own adulthood, like what is wrong with you kind of thing. Like how many op-eds have you read by white male literary novelists who are like, adults only read YA now, and as a result, we have lost our collective capacity for critical thought and empathetic imagination. (laughs) I mean, amongst many other reasons why that is the worst take imaginable, I just keep wanting to, like, grab these guys by the ears (laughs) and be like, tell me when in human history everybody was reading literary fiction exclusively. Exactly. When do you think this existed? It's far easier just to, like, shit all over, right, the teen girl culture and the the adult women culture, in this case, too, than it is to actually, you know, embrace it as something that is part of a larger, broader social movement that might actually critique the very things that, you know, these older white men are trying to separate. Has this, like, status of fan fiction or fan studies, like, shifted? It has. So if we fast forward to today, uh, both fandom and fan studies have changed since those early days. So fans may still be dismissed as other um, and ridiculed by non-fans, but fandom itself is generally more accepted and even mainstream now. And fans are often wooed by media producers who use them to help hype new content, this kind of thing. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Which you guys can do with, you know, your merch. (laughs) in terms of Eddie Bauer, you know, sending you some good stuff. Yes, yes, 100%. We are ready to sell out. I myself just recently sold out to a uh, DVD distributor who um, is giving me free box sets to do stuff, and I am like, I am a complete sellout, and I have to acknowledge that. Do it. Do it. Get those box sets. 
You know, people say that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, but I think we should start reminding everybody that there's no ethical sponsorship under capitalism either. So, like, <laughs> someone wants to give you money, you just take that. You take that money. That's your money now. <laughs> so, on on the fan studies side of things, scholars are still concerned with questions of power and oppression, but they tend to study fandom as interpretive communities that are embedded within and reflect uh, the wider social, cultural, and economic status quo. So in other words, fandom is less studied today as a site of resistance and subversion and more as an aspect of everyday life. Fan studies thus allow us to investigate the complex mechanisms through which people interact with a mediated world. Okay, so is that... A shift in terms of how widespread fandom itself is. Like, there is so much fandom now that we have to think about it differently than we used to? Or is it more of a sort of shift in perspective that is like rethinking the dynamics between like publics and counterpublics to shout out to our last episode? I think it's both, but I think the driving force is actually technology. Marcel and I both, you could, like, see our ears perk up the second you Ooh. offered a, like, media-specific interpretation. We were <laughs> like, oh, a shift in the material conditions of production? Tell us more! So, <laughs> I'm busy laughing, sorry. Focus me. <laughs> yeah, no laughing. Stop having fun on our podcast. This is a serious podcast about Harry Potter. <laughs> So Harry Potter is actually a particularly good fandom to examine in terms of this idea of technological shift changing the way that fandom is perceived. And the reason for that, if you make a, a contrast between, let's say, the two generally biggest fandoms of the 20th century, and this would be Star Trek in its various incarnations, and Harry Potter, if you go back to, you know, original Trek, the way that people interacted within fandom back in the day was predominantly through things like zines, right? Mail order <laughs> things circulating yeah. very slowly, mm -hmm. um, conventions. But again, these would only be, you know, once or a couple times a year maybe, and you'd have to have the money and ability to go to these things. Harry Potter comes around and it come, it arises at the same time as, frankly, the internet's ability to handle large discussions with tons and tons of people, but also all of these different types of media that fans are going to produce. So suddenly you've got this huge fandom, but also all of this technology that's supporting it. And so the way that fandom works changes quite quickly and quite drastically, especially if you compare those two. But it also means that our sort of social view of fandom similarly shifts just because of the number of people, but again, also the fact that our whole society shifts with this kind of online-facing way of interacting. So that's why I tend to think, Hannah, what you said originally, I think it's both, but I think the a key component that always has to be, you know, incorporated is actually this this large technological shift in how we interact with each other as fans. Okay, before we move on, what I'm wondering about is the way that we understand fandoms and fan fiction has sort of shifted away from a tool of the oppressed to, you know, critique or resist dominant culture. 
and towards an understanding of fandom as part of dominant culture. And so is that largely because as fandoms shift into dominant culture, they then lose their ability to critique exactly what they are because they are that thing? Are they no longer a, like, outsider critique because they're part of dominant culture now, so they can't be, like, opposed to it? They're interpolated into it? I love to just say interpolated. Yeah, so fans and fandoms have just been interpolated into dominant culture. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes and no. My favorite kind of answer. <laughs> so I love that you brought up interpolation, too, because, yes, in many ways, they have been interpolated, and therefore... There is a sense that, I mean, just as we were talking about, you know, selling out before, in some ways you can kind of perceive fandom to be selling out in the sense that many fans now can and do interact with uh, large corporations to present things in a way that are no longer perceived to be um, quite as genuine as they might have once been. So the background to this is... There's a a big uh, fan studies and just fandom general uh, scholar named Henry Jenkins. And he's been a huge force in all this. Yeah, he's, you know, he's in all sorts of areas now. But one of Jenkins's big ideas is this concept of participatory culture, which basically breaks down into these ideas that fandom can be a kind of shared experience, all focused on texts that really matter, and fans really believe in that, and that they're actively participating within this. And so back in the day when Jenkins first proposed this idea, he was suggesting that fandom could be a kind of intersection of participatory culture and what was then known as Web 2.0. Is Web 2.0 the same as read and write web? Yeah, Web 2.0 was characterized by the possibility of, like, linking between different things and so responding to different things, as opposed to, like, Web 1.0 was sort of unidirectional, like, you could put stuff on there and you could read it, but you couldn't really respond to it or, like, link it to other things. I think when people refer to the read and write web, it's the sort of, like, the user can participate in the same way that the the content generator generates content. (laughs) That's the key right there, right? So this idea that Web 2.0 was, you know, something that could be dynamically developed by everyone, not just corporations, right? So fast forward to now, one of the um, criticisms of fandom as, you know, this intersection of the two is that it didn't really work in that many fandoms and, and fans have been... I mean, this is harsh to say, but somewhat co-opted by more corporate interests. So the other side of of all of this is if you look within fandom, instead of looking at it in terms of this outside corporate aspect, if you look inside fandom, there are ways in which we sometimes talk about fandom as if it's one sort of monolithic thing, right? All fans act in the same way we do these things. We know that obviously that's not true. And so an aspect of this that also comes up are problems within how fans and fandoms work. And when it comes to fan fiction, one of the obvious ones would be, why is there so much um, male-male slash fiction, whereas we have almost not a dearth, but very, very little, say, female-female slash fan fiction, or what's often known as fem slash. Can you quickly explain what slash fiction is for folks who might not know? I love that we define slash, but none of us bothered to define interpolation. (laughs) 
<laughs> just read Altazare. Obviously, everybody's read Altazare, but like, do we know what slash fiction is? Hard to say. <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> That's Marcel's definition of interpolation. <laughs> Did you turn around? I turned around. Turn around. Listen, we'll make a bonus Patreon footnote episode where we explain Altazare. <laughs> Um, right. Okay. So fan fiction has all of these terms that are unique to it, right? Some of it, it also shares with other forms of, of fan works. And so ships or relationship pairings is one of these forms that is shared across multiple styles of fan works. A ship um, is basically just where you put two or more characters together. Um, in fan fiction, it's usually into some sort of romantic or sexual relationship, but it does not necessarily have to be so. Ships are often categorized according to certain aspects. So the dominant way of categorizing them is according to uh, characters and within characters, how those characters are gendered. Now, this is a tricky way to say this because, of course, fan fiction allows you to play with gender and sexuality in all sorts of open ways. So there's a, a problematic way in which we create a really binary style model of categorization, which doesn't necessarily actually reflect how fans are, are writing about these characters. But if you go by, say, Archive of Our Own, which is one of the, the biggest fan fiction uh, repositories or fanfiction.net, um, both of those tend to, although I think that's changed, but generally they, they used to at least organize things according to male-male, male-female, female-female, or non-gendered. So if we say, if we use the word slash, slash has traditionally referred to specifically male-male pairings, but that's questionable. I personally use slash, but don't mean that. I use slash to mean sort of any pairing, but that's a, a kind of personal choice because I prefer to break out of gender binaries. Fem slash is often used to represent a female-female pairing. And het slash or hetero slash is going to be a male-female pairing. So we've got all these ways of, of categorizing. So I originally started with this idea that fan fiction exists in this kind of symbiotic relationship with canon texts, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here to also talk about canon and fanon, which may not always be well-known terms. So canon refers to commodified source material. So in this case, this would be Rowling's texts. Uh, fanon refers to fan-created amateur texts. And the amateur part of that is particularly important in terms of avoiding copyright issues. So fanon might be something like fan fiction or um, in the Harry Potter realm, the Harry Potter puppet pals have traditionally been a very well-known source of fanon. And everybody sings the song. So recognizing fan fiction as symbiotic with canon texts rather than as other or lesser allows contemporary fan studies scholars to complicate the traditional role of authorship. So as fan fiction scholar Christina Booth suggests, quote, many of the rifts and contradictions inherent in discourses of authorship are most evident and play themselves out especially clearly in fan authorship. As a result, fans, with their often dual role of reader and writer, 
and their particular awareness of the interpretive communities in which their texts are written, read, and interpreted can demonstrate how our understanding of the author has shifted from a seemingly unified entity to a more complex and shifting entity. Oh, so this is why we can so enthusiastically declare the death of the author in the context of fandom, right? We just be like, whatever, a quote-unquote, a JK, (laughs) quote-unquote, rolling. Exactly. But here's where it gets tricky. We can fully bring in Death of the Author with the source texts, and I am fully happy cancelling J.K. Rowling. But, of course, we still have authors of fan texts. Yes, 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 yes. So kind of like your yes and no answer to my muddied question about, like, dominant culture and, uh, I didn't say counterculture, but yeah, sure, like, (laughs) dominant publics and (laughs) counterpublics. Like, what you're describing here is that there continues to be a difference in, like, in power and influence when it comes to even how we understand authorship. So, like, you, so, like, resisting the authority of J.K. Rowling is very different from resisting the authority of the, like, 23-year-old who wrote some slash fic and it got really popular. And this kind of gets into a concept um, known as fantagonism. I love how much fan studies is just action-packed with neologisms and portmanteaus. This is delightful. We do everything based on portmanteaus, let's let's face it, right? I mean, so I'm just going to throw in this little side note about fantagonisms. This is a term that comes from a fan studies scholar named Derek Johnson. And he talks about them as ongoing competitive struggles between both internal fan factions and external institutions to discursively codify the fan text producer relationship according to their competitive interests. Now, in regard to fan gatekeeping, because that, of course, is going to be an aspect of this, Johnson explains that, quote, fan positions in relation to media industries are nearly always positions taken in opposition to other fan factions with their own positions in relation to industry, unquote. So there's always, you know, fans versus the content rights holder, let's call them that. But then there's fans versus other fans. And then within that, fans versus fans. And in some ways, they replicate the same dynamics at each of these levels. Mm-hmm. So it gets complicated. <laughs> I love it. I love getting I love getting it complicated. So within that this particular complication, right? Of like our sense of authorship, we can't just throw authorship out. We've gotta complicate it. Like, what does that do for us in the context of, like, you know, talking about a particular, talking about the Order of the Phoenix, talking about a particular book? Like, how do we use that complication? Very good question. Um, So, (laughs) the key thing here is that we care, or possibly just I care, because fan fiction demonstrates not only readers' responses to Rowling's canon text, but their analysis of it. I don't just mean analysis in terms of fan essays, although there are many. (laughs) I mean the way in which fan fiction itself, like most fan works, often offers an implicit analysis of the text and genres to which it responds. Here's an example. In Book 5, Dumbledore finally reveals the protection that Lily's blood gives to Harry and why he insists on sending Harry to the Dursleys each summer. 
much fan fiction, much, <laughs> responds to this moment <laughs> by emphasizing Dumbledore's role as a kind of puppet master. Yeah. Because yeah. he is. Because he is, yeah. In fan fiction that focuses in particular on Draco or Snape, Dumbledore is often positioned as an unfair and almost villainous character. That portrayal is, in itself, a critique of Dumbledore's character and is often based on the author's analysis of Rowling's characterization within her texts. Fans will sometimes even include little mini-essays about why they present Dumbledore in this way and will chat about that characterization with other fans within the comments section of the fix. So, fan fiction itself can actually be a form of textual analysis. I mean, we have been saying this all along, right? We're like, fan fiction and literary criticism are often doing exactly the same thing. They're just doing it in a different form. Definitely. Yeah, like those essays are explicit textual analysis and the fan fiction is implicit. That's exactly it. Wow, fans are the best. (laughs) Hot take. It is a hot take. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right. So we are going to be narrowing in in this episode on like a particular kind of fan fiction, I think. So, (laughs) and you have warned us that we might be a little weirded out by it, Um, but I'm... I'm ready. So tell us about this potentially distressing fan fiction genre. Okay, so to show how fandom or fan fiction can critique entire genres, I tend to really focus on uh, what's called snanger fics, which are fan fiction focusing on Severus Snape and Hermione Granger in a romantic relationship together. Now, these stories really creep out non-Snanger fans, uh, particularly if this, the fix are set during the Hogwarts years when Hermione is a teenager, Snape is in his 30s. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it freaks a lot of people out. They're often like, are these, are these stories of pedophilia and child abuse? And what I have learned by focusing on Snanger fix, uh, particularly novel-length ones that are written between 2000 and 2010, so this is a very specific moment in Snanger fandom. Roughly how many novel-length Snanger fix were written in between 2000 and 2010? Oh my god, hundreds and hundreds and thousands. There, I mean, it really depends where you go. There were... I mean, you can go to fanfiction.net where you had a lot that were written particularly by younger people, but you could also go to um, specialized Snanger websites such as um, ashwinder.sycophet.hex, and that would have a whole realm of people, some of whom are younger, some of whom are older, who were all writing specifically Snape Hermione fics. So... Uh, 
Many, and that's just in English. So there's, it's not the biggest of the Harry Potter micro fandoms, but it's definitely one of the major ones. So some of the authors or many of the authors were young people themselves. Does it, does authorship (laughs) matter? (laughs) I think we've got a couple things at play here, right? We've got who's writing the texts and we've got who's reading the texts. And both the writers and the readers are young people and older people. There's not, well, A, it's very difficult to know who is who unless people outwardly admit it. Now, there are sometimes some analyses. So like in 2010, a man named Charles Sendler did an analysis of fanfiction.net. And this was across all of fanfiction.net, not just um, Snanger. But he found that 80% of users who revealed their age were actually between 13 and 17 years old. So fanfiction.net aimed young. And a lot of people have different reasons for that. Partially the idea that fanfiction.net is kind of a starter site for many people into fanfiction. But once you get into something like Archive of Our Own or the the specialized micro-fandom sites, you will still have young people, but that's where you often find even more um, older people writing these texts. So it kind of covers a whole range of things. And when it comes to Snape and Hermione, I think one of the things that we often overlook is um, the power of Alan Rickman. (laughs) (laughs) quite frankly Mm -hmm. because that man had you know a following of all ages and even though obviously fans are writing about Snape as a character in the book uh, you know the power of the movies means that that Snape is often Alan Rickman's Snape so that comes into play too so can you talk us through a little bit more sort of how the authors of these fics are thinking about this like potentially distressing sort of taboo age difference? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, So what I found in in studying them is that Snanger authors are intensely interested in the ethics of their texts. And they actually create fic conventions that are specifically designed to avoid the dangers of age-related sexual taboos. Simultaneously, however, they also use these taboos as a form of pleasurable fantasy textual kink. And what is interesting to me as a children's lit scholar is that fans of all ages, like we've already talked about, younger and older, collaborate together in creating these conventions. And so in doing so, they demonstrate this likeness between fans that is independent of age. When you say conventions here, you mean like ways of doing, not like gathering spaces. Like tropes. Probably one of the most famous uh, fic conventions for Snanger fix is what's called the Marriage Law Challenge. And this is basically when the Ministry of Magic steps in, usually while Hermione is at Hogwarts, but not necessarily. And it says, okay, we don't have enough magical beings being born um, because the purebloods are too busy marrying only purebloods. And basically, there's magic is being bred out of the wizarding world. So to rectify this, we are going to force marriage between pure or half-bloods and muggle-borns. And so inevitably, Hermione uh, ends up with Snape, who, when the marriage challenge started, people thought was a pure-blood, and then later on, 
turns out not to be, and so they had to change the marriage challenge slightly. But basically what happens is that uh, Hermione is under threat of death from basically anyone else. So like, you know, Lucius Malfoy will be like, I want to marry you, and she's like, you were going to kill me, or Draco Malfoy, or something, and Snape has to protect her. And so the the relationship starts as this weird protective thing of Snape then and Hermione, and they come together. Sometimes there's other reasons, but that's sort of the dominant one. And then the other really extra disturbing part of that is that um, there is forced copulation and forced babies. So um, Hermione has to produce babies. Usually she has to have sex with Snape at like pre-arranged times, weekly. It's fascinating and disturbing all at the same time. Um, but interestingly, again, the, the people writing this are often doing it in ways that are acknowledging the disturbing nature of this while also trying to get around it by kind of creating these ethical situations that say basically that this is not Hermione's fault and Snape is not a pedophile and they are being forced into this and this kind of stuff. I'm thinking about like, I just really want to start asking, like, what work are these texts doing? Like, both what are they latching onto in the book that invites this kind of reading? And I'm less like, oh, gross. And I'm more like, like you, I think, like, oh, that's really interesting. What is happening here? So one of the things that it does seem to be doing is challenging genre. Since both children's and YA lit as genres tend to be defined by audience, so we generally think of Harry Potter as children's or YA text most of the time, and since this audience is aimed at children or teenagers, these fanfiction conventions created by fans of all ages force us to fundamentally question children's and YA lit as genre. Instead, they suggest an alternative anti-age-based and also anti-ageist model of children's and YA lit. In other words, Snager fanfiction not only analyzes Rowling's text, but it forces us to question the boundaries of the very genre in which those texts are often categorized and to rethink what is children's and YA lit. And that's a that's a big deal to those of us who study children's lit. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think, like... Again, sort of what is what is getting seized on by readers turned authors in this case? Like, you know, what is happening in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix that people are like, here is a space that makes us want to challenge the limitations of this text in terms of how it's thinking about things like sex and power. I'm going to waffle this, but I think a lot of it comes down to, again, the fact that Book five is sort of a turning point text within the series, right? You've got you've got various turning points, right? Uh, book three, in many ways, is one of the first big turning points, but five is really where we're starting to finally understand larger concepts of power and ideology, not just within Hogwarts, but obviously within the wizarding world itself, and it corresponds with a kind of true adolescence, and that's a terrible way to put it, but. The other texts, Harry, Ron, Hermione, you know, our golden trio are still relatively young and they're still just sort of sorting stuff out, but they become 15 and 16 in this one. And suddenly you get 
power, you get ideology, you also get sexuality. Everything is just sort of coming together. And you get emo Harry, who is super <laughs> angry all the time. Bless him. And I just think all of that is a, a kind of soup, you know, that pulls together <laughs> everything. Okay, speaking of transition points, I think this is a perfect point for us to transition into our next segment and really start talking about this book. What do you say? Sounds great. Yay! (laughs) I think we've spent enough time theorizing both winter and fan fiction. Why don't we write some of our own in Owls? So... I'm really taken with this idea of like the transition point and this book being a transition point. And the thing that I thought of immediately was that argument that the kids and the adults are having in number 12 Grimmauld Place where the kids want to be part of the order. They want to know what's going on. And the adults are to various degrees trying to keep them children and This seems like a great example of what you're talking about with this book and how we're it's a it's a transition point from (laughs) childhood to adulthood, kind of. They're literally having a fight over the definition of like coming of age. Exactly. Which is always a key aspect of fan fiction because of the fact that so much of uh, the sort of sexual aspects have ethical questions surrounding age. Now, when it comes to um, the introduction to Grimmauld Place, so we we see this first, um, well, it comes up in particular around chapter five, and that's when we really meet not only Grimmauld Place, but the Order of the Phoenix itself. So we, we get this idea of here is this frankly vigilante group, right? But working, <laughs> working against, you know, the the problematic ideology of the Ministry of Magic and everything else that's going on. So, in some ways, the introduction to Grimmauld Place and to the Order of the Phoenix creates a kind of tension in the text between this knowable home space, and that's something where you have them having meals together, they're cleaning together, they're relaxed, they have these casual encounters, but also, as you mentioned, these arguments. But this is happening between the characters regardless of their age or status within the wizarding world. Now, we do still have adults versus kids, but you get characters like Sirius Black, who even that is, he's like, no, no, Harry ought to know, right? So uh, it, there is in some ways, well, I perceive it as a home, not really home, but home space. But at the same time, you do have this also space of exclusion, right? And that might be based on age, Uh, But it's also just this idea of who is allowed to have access to privileged information and who is not. So the space itself then becomes this doubled place. And fan fiction writers love that because it creates a space in which they can play with a lot of characters who wouldn't normally be able to interact with each other in their normal canonical settings. So it's like seizing in on this this thing that is implicit in the text, which is that the student's introduction into these kinds of third spaces that are like not work, not school, not home, that have like been kind of more neatly categorizing their relationships prior to this book. Like now they're getting introduced into these spaces where it's like 
different kinds of dynamics exist. They are in a different relationship to power. They are in a different relationship to each other. They're starting to, like, see their teachers as people. That's exactly it. And as soon as you start seeing your teacher as a person, right, it creates this whole new angle, especially if you're writing, you know, smutty fan fiction. So, <laughs> for example, in Snanger fan fiction or in Minmione, and Minmione is um, McGonagall Hermione fan fiction. The portmanteaus, I just, they absolutely, they just killed me. All about portmanteaus. Do you know, as a side little note, the portmanteau actually exists because of Tumblr and Tumblr's inability to have a slash within its tagging system. Oh, I love that. Material history is my favorite thing. That's so (laughs) cool. It's cool. And before the portmanteau were the actual ships. So you would have like SS and then the name of a ship. So that's just a little side note, but yeah. Anyway, so with the example of something like, say, uh, Minmione or Snanger, you would have uh, your authority figure, such as Snape or McGonagall, who normally Hermione would only see at Hogwarts and only, you know, in specific spots. And suddenly they are hanging out let's say, at Grimmauld Place after an order meeting one night. Everybody else has gone to bed, but they are exhausted from workload or often in these cases, uh, Snape has been brutalized by Voldemort, so he's all hurt and stuff and healing himself. Anyway, Hermione can't sleep, and so she goes down to the kitchen for, you know, tea or warm milk or hot chocolate or, like, insert your fanfiction writer's favorite thing. And inevitably, she sees Snape or McGonagall, depending on your fic, and all of a sudden, it is this moment of realization of them as a person and as particularly a vulnerable person, even though these are very strong characters otherwise. And this creates what is one of the most beloved styles of fan fiction, which is the hurt comfort story. And so something will happen where basically Hermione is trying to comfort Snape or McGonagall and feels a strong need to do this. And the story will sort of go from that where over time they may or may not accept her comfort. Although inevitably you know that they will and that'll be sort of the end point. But it's a it's a pretty typical trajectory based on this idea that, you know, we're outside the normal authority hierarchy. No, the other side of this is, of course, the space of exclusion, right? We were talking before about how the younger characters in particular um, are not granted access to information from the Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, they're always trying to listen in and spy and use their extendable ears. Exactly. And so it seems in some ways that fic writers are kind of paralleled with these characters because they also want to know more, right? They want to be inside the Order somehow. Right, because you are reading from Harry's perspective implicitly. You only know what Harry knows. And so fan fiction becomes that opportunity to like get into that room the same way the kids want to. Exactly. So they'll have all of these fics where Harry or Hermione usually are somehow um, inducted into the order. Now, this is usually because Harry is Harry, but for Hermione, it's often because uh, she overused the time turner and is actually, therefore, like two years older than she actually is or something like this. And so... They end up being inducted, but they're not allowed to tell their friends. And so what happens is that they 
often become secret handlers for other members of the order, or they do some sort of secret work that no one else can know about. And so they have this stress of having all this access to this information that has to be protected from everyone else. And so they become kind of alienated from their friends while simultaneously developing these very intense romantic relationships with whoever it is that they're paired with in the fic. And ultimately, you get this idea of alienation from friends while simultaneously furthering their own maturation into adulthood and into adult responsibility. So that's another typical one. Which is already such a strong through line in this book as like Harry is navigating his increasing alienation from his peers because of the way he's been like thrust prematurely into adult responsibilities by the negligent adults around him, I guess. Exactly, exactly. It's totally commenting on that. Yeah. And the ways that Dumbledore like withholds specific information, but gives Harry just enough that he becomes responsible for certain things. I mean, and like, we'll get into that more in book six, when he actually gives him like, assignments. But this is making me want to ask a question that I wonder if it's just a little bit silly. But um, I'm curious if I'm curious about the conventions and the tropes of fan fiction and what I hadn't really considered before is the fact that fan fiction does have to draw on the text. And so it was very surprising to me to suddenly realize like, oh, Grimmel Place is a fruitful site for fan fiction because it provides an excuse for characters to get together in a way that like Diagon Alley might not or like Florian Fortescue's ice cream shop might not. It, it, see, it's interesting because what you're getting at is sort of one of the big questions of fan fiction studies, which is what is the end of the canon text and where does the fanon text begin? And what does the fanon text owe to the canon text? And that is a huge question because there are some fans who um, keep the two very close together. So in their fanon text, for example, everything has to be exactly as the chronology of the canon text suggests. So it's like shit that's happening off screen, a la like Longborn, the novel's relationship to Pride and Prejudice. It's like you didn't see this perspective because you weren't paying attention to the servants, but like here is another thing that was happening, but it has to match up with the canon text. That's exactly it. So for fun, some fans, that is very important because that creates a kind of legitimacy for their own reading, their own text. For other fans, though, particularly ones who are more interested in AU or alternate universe texts, they are like, we are taking, you know, maybe only the most basic aspect of Harry Potter. And it could be only, say, a tiny portion of a setting. They may not refer to any characters. They may not, you know, refer to basically any part, but there's just some aspect, and they'll go from there. Um, And that's particularly true sometimes when you have insertion narratives, where people might insert themselves as characters. You also have a kind of outside thing, which can be real person fan fiction about the actors um, who have portrayed characters. And that's that's a whole other area of fan fiction. But that is also something that exists. So uh, that then is obviously even farther away from the canon text because it's not even about Harry Potter, but it is about the actors. So it's a real question of what is this relationship between canon and fanon? 
And Rowling herself, of course, obviously complicates this because she keeps generating more information, right? <laughs> she won't She won't stop. I mean, this is when we were like, okay, so Rowling is basically just also a fan mm-hmm. at this point, mm-hmm. trying to, like, at, like, expand this world. But, like, she has all of this institutional force behind her interpretations and fan texts and gap filling that the other fans don't even though a lot of the time hers are significantly worse (laughs) exactly but you're right about like the the institutional like power that comes with her right like i'm thinking about there was a moment several years ago when she did a um an interview with i think it was emma watson um where she basically admitted that she thinks hermione should have ended up with harry instead of with ron because it wasn't the best match and then if you recall there was a giant and sort of fan both love and anger because the people who had always shipped those two together were like, finally, we're acknowledged. If Rowling says this is how it should have been, then that is now canon and we have legitimacy. And the people who were, you know, Hermione Ron shippers were like, no, no, like we had legitimacy because this was in canon. Like you can't go changing this. So it created a a little fandom, well, a little, a giant fandom <laughs> drama. And the fact that, you know, there were, like, I remember it was the the front cover of the Sunday Times in the UK. It's on, the whole article about Rowling saying this is on the very front cover. And it's like, that was huge enough news to make, to be cover material. So... Yeah, it's a fa- it's a really fabulous and interesting relationship between canon and fanon and who gets to define what is canon and fanon. Okay, so we have talked about how Grimmauld Place as this like sort of weird liminal space introduces new readings and new ideas. And I guess our other like weird new space in this book is the Room of Requirement, which is like another space where it's like okay, the students are at Hogwarts now, but they're still in this, like, secret space that is, like, in Hogwarts, but not really in Hogwarts. And when they go in there, they are in, like, now a different relationship to the institution and a different relationship to power and a different relationship to each other. So, like, has that been a similarly fruitful, like, fan space, I guess? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can probably already guess that fans love the Room of Requirement. So... As you said, in the text, to subvert Umbridge's authority, the Golden Trio basically has to seek out these spaces, right, that exist outside of ideological and physical control of the Ministry of Magic. And so you have Dobby telling Harry about the Room of Requirement. And for the students, in canon, the room becomes the space of pure potential, right? It can be anything, but also of safety, obviously. And we'll see this again in in the later texts. So as such, it's paralleled with a similarly unstable yet also safe-ish spaces, such as Grimmauld Place, like you just pointed out, but also their tent in the later, in Book 7, both of which exist outside the control of the Ministry of Magic, but also can change physically, right, to respond to their needs. And um, as a side note, Sarah Cantrell, who is a, a really great Harry Potter scholar, talks about these ideas specifically in an article about heterotopias. Anyway, for fanon, <laughs> fan fiction authors love the Room of Requirement because it provides this sort of safe meeting space for both sanctioned but also for illicit relationships. But it also provides a space in which one partner can't be found if they don't want to be. So it's both. 
So, for example, if we have a Drary fic, so that is Draco and Harry, um, let's say that Draco and Harry use the room of requirement to meet up and have their sexy times. Um, but equally, either one can use the room as a space in which to be alone and to ponder their relationship. So you'll have many fanfic scenes that are set within the room that are often actually scenes in which a single character is struggling um, working through complex emotions, and the room is actually blocking their partner from entering to allow them to process all of these emotions. And that, again, is a pretty common trope in a lot of a lot of different micro-fandoms within Harry Potter. Okay, so then can you tell us a bit more about what that reveals about the canon or the fanon? So within a lot of that type of fan fiction, the room limits itself to students' needs, right? Not desires. And that's just like Dobby suggests in the canon text. And of course, fan fiction writers could change that, but generally they don't. And so fix that emphasize these illicit relationships. So for example, Snape and Hermione um, further emphasize how the room doesn't judge, right? It just it just gives them what they need. And this emphasis suggests that the room may function not only outside of the ideological control of the ministry, but perhaps outside of any ideological control. And I mean, we already talked about Althusser a little bit, so that's a questionable idea, but <laughs> just generally outside of um, standardized stances of ideological control. I'm actually pretty sure that Althusser says there is no outside to ideology except for the room of requirement. I love that. I'm going to add that into every version of Althusser I have now. <laughs> I mean, it certainly provides a space that is outside of the ideological control of rolling, right? In in a way that, like, so much of the rest of the text is saturated with her with her ideology. Yeah, that's I that's such a fun way of looking at it, and also very like rolling way, which I also love. Yeah, that's so interesting, Marcel, to think about how like. The ideological control of the ministry is explicit in the text, but the ideological control of Rowling is implicit, but saturates the Order of the Phoenix, including things like the introduction of the sort of gendered policing of entry into different rooms and the way that that sort of suggests a sort of like a, an essentialized understanding of gender that is like built into Hogwarts. And so... We see in, like, the way that so much of this world is built, these, like, ideological assumptions that that Rowling has, like, built into the fabric of this imagined realm. And the Room of Requirement, while being imagined as a space that, as you say, Amanda, is outside the ideological control of the ministry, so, like, really just out from under Umbridge's thumb is, like, also out from under Rowling's thumb. I just want to go hang out in the room of requirement now. That's all. I just wanted to exist in real life, and I want to be like, take that, Rowling, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And, yeah, that's that's not a good response to what you just said, Hannah, which is brilliant, <laughs> but that's how I'm feeling. I kind of like thinking about this podcast as, like, a, like a discursive room of requirement. Oh, love it. I love that. New pin idea. <laughs> Every episode we like are like, okay, you know, now we need to think about it in this way. And then we open it up and now it's now it's fan theory. <laughs> Look at this room, just chock-a-block full of fan theory. The room <laughs> provided us with a whole professor to explain fan theory to us. We're so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I don't 
don't know what it means that the room can also be, you know, a giant toilet. I'm trying not to make that particular <laughs> equation what that means with me, but yay. You know what, Amanda? We all contain multitudes, so... <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. And if you want to hang out with Amanda more, she's on Twitter at AmandaAllenPhD. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts? I recently came across another podcast that had more reviews than us and I got jealous, so I need you all to go and do that. At the end of every episode, we will shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel building a mystery <laughs> out of your usernames. Thanks this week to hmm, Gesso Rosso, or maybe Gesso Rosso, Istava Pod, Pod Profesh, Wayfaring Woozle, and Vega Bear. <laughs> and while I'm at it, Thank you to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters for making this show possible. If you want to join the hallowed ranks and exercise the accompanying bragging rights of being a Witch Please patron, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then... Later, witches!